0: Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio
1: tuned to this frequency.
0: You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host.
2: I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy.
0: Brian Berger.
2: Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. In segment two headlines, we're going to recap all of the big business of Super Bowl 42. From the historic TV ratings to the best and the worst TV commercials, we'll even tell you about the increased marketability of Eli Manning. That's coming up in segment two. In segment three, we're going to catch up with Maury Brown from thebizofbaseball.com. The Major League Baseball season is quickly approaching. There's a number of storylines to discuss, from Johan Santana's record contract with the New York Mets to the status of the sale of the Chicago Cubs. We'll have lots of baseball business to discuss in segment three. In segment four, Sports sense, we're going to catch up with our good friend Rick Bucher. He's ESPN's NBA insider. He's going to join us to discuss the big Shaquille O'Neal trade this week. Shaq, who's a corporation in and of himself, was traded from the Miami Heat to the Phoenix Suns this week. And this deal has all kinds of business implications uh, from team payroll, jersey sales. This deal really was made because of the economics of basketball. We'll discuss that with Rick Bucher in segment four couple of other notes, visit my sports business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm joined in studio by Nathan Roach. Nathan, I went to Phoenix this week. The plan was to have Phoenix Suns owner Robert Sarver on the show. I watched the game with him in Phoenix uh, on Monday. We were in the suite, and all of a sudden, he ducks out, and I didn't see him again. Well, as it turns out, he goes to take a phone call from Miami Heat owner, mickey arison and lo and behold a few days
3: later we've got a deal a blockbuster deal with that i can't believe he would dog you like that i mean even with shaquille o'neal on the trading block that he would stiff you like that no he had a great time he got to sit courtside and even got to play a little golf way down there huh
2: yeah i got to play some small ball as you would call it i played at the arizona country club my dad's a member there beautiful country club it was very nice weather up here in the pacific northwest lots of rain cold it was so nice to go down and be in the sun, and uh, my golf game actually wasn't half bad. That's what happens. You go out the first time of the season, you don't expect anything of yourself, and you actually play
3: halfway decent. You said you made, uh, what, like a 60-foot putt? Longest I, was, putt I was draining putts. Well, that's surprising. I've played golf with you before. I know you have, and i played golf with you too, and you're
0: not very good either.
2: Oh, wow. Coming up next, we've got lots of headlines, lots to discuss on this edition of Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs, Themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit SportsBusinessRadio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in
0: sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger.
2: It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit WarsawCenter.com for more information. Headline number one. Fox's broadcast of Super Bowl 42 last Sunday earned a final Nielsen rating of a 43.1 it was seen by 97 and a half million viewers making it the most watched Super Bowl of all time and the second most watched broadcast in American TV history behind the 106 million viewers for the final episode of mash in 1983 Nathan enormous ratings and Rupert Murdoch the chair and CEO of News Corp which, owns fox called it the single biggest day in the history of fox television well, brian
3: i've got to eat my words i said a couple of weeks ago when you said hey this is gonna be the highest rated super bowl of all time i disagreed with you and obviously it turned out that it was i think the fact that it was such a good game and came down to the last plays made people stay tuned and i'm still not sure that had it not been a blowout on either side that people would have stayed tuned as they did i think that's really pushed it over the edge
2: as if it wasn't a great enough week for Fox. And by the way, it was the greatest week ratings-wise in the history of Fox Network. Uh, they've already sold out all their ad space for the Daytona 500. They've got that broadcast. They're getting $550,000 for a 30-second spot. Obviously, as we've said the last few weeks, they were getting $2.7 for a 30-second spot for the Super Bowl. Our next headline, Eli Manning could be in line for some big endorsement money. He's already making $6.5 million in his salary from the Giants. He made another $5 million in endorsements. But some experts are saying that he could be in line for another 5 to $7 million. I mean, he's in New York. He is a Manning. He led them on this dramatic Super
3: Bowl-winning drive. There's lots of people lining up to work with Eli Manning now. Well, certainly I think this helps his marketability, but I still question whether he'll be as big as his brother is. His brother, to me, is a lot more charismatic. He's better in ads. Eli's going to have to up the personality in order to make it to the Peyton Manning level, but this is huge for Eli Manning. Well, as Darren
2: Ravel from CNBC said on our show a few weeks ago, the best thing Eli could do right now is take some acting lessons or work with an acting coach coach so he's more comfortable in the commercials that he appears in he looks a little bit awkward but i think he's going to have plenty of opportunities and you know what if you can't afford peyton manning eli is not a bad option our next headline anheuser Busch for the 10th year in a row has won usa today's super bowl ad meter award the winning ad for the budweiser brand which ran during the second quarter of fox's coverage of super bowl 42 featured a dalmatian who becomes personal trainer to a dejected Clydesdale. You know, there were lots of great ads. Anheuser-Busch, we had Denny Galati on the show last week. He previewed the ads for us, talked about the $18 million worth of ads that they ran. But again... Nathan, what were some of your favorites? And then I'll tell you the the top five ranked ads and the worst five ranked ads.
3: Well, you just mentioned that the Budweiser Clydesdale was the top ranked ad, and I'm surprised. I still think that Will Ferrell's Bud Light ad was my favorite ad. Hysterical. my favorite, too. It's hysterical. It's so funny. But Bud had some great ads this year. FedEx, Bridgestone, I know you're going to break those down for us. I thought there were more good ads this year than uh, the last probably two or three years.
2: Yeah, so the top five ads, the one we just described for Budweiser, FedEx, the one where uh, the FedEx beats giant carrier pigeons. That I I didn't like it I, that much. I thought much. that was pretty good. Uh, Bridgestone, the critters screaming with the squirrel missed by the car. Bobby, our producer, loved that one. Doritos. This one was submitted by a contest winner, which finished in third place last year. The giant rat goes for the guy's big bag of chips. Uh, you know we had seen that online, so I was kind of surprised to see it in the Super Bowl. But it got good reviews. And then the fifth-rated ad was Bud Light, the fire breather. Heats up the romantic dinner. Now, let's talk about some of the ads that landed with a thud. You like this one as we were watching it, the Doritos one with the music video for the hey, online I went, song.
3: I went to Apple the very next day. To how look, many downloads? I, it didn't tell me how many downloads, but it, it picked up. The popularity bar on it was huge, and it's been viral all over the web. YouTube has got this girl Okay, everywhere. so you know
2: what? Great for her. Great
3: that she has uh, commercials now. But – no one knows about Doritos. I mean, it just didn't mix. Yeah, but they, when companies do this and they provide viewers and talented artists like this a platform, I think people resonate with that because you think, well, maybe I could get in one of these the same way that people produced the other Doritos ad with the giant rat last year. I thought the worst ad, without a doubt, Under Armour. Under Armour spent $5.4 million
2: on this ad. It looked like uh, a takeoff of the Apple 1984 commercial, this revolutionary cross trainer. A lot of athletes who we didn't recognize. It's not like Under Armour has LeBron James and Tiger Woods and uh, Roger Federer and people that you can just go, oh, I know who that is. It's a lot of people you're kind of like, oh, I think that might be Vernon Davis and maybe that's uh, Ray Lewis, it just landed with a thud and it got terrible reviews the next day. I didn't like it. As we've said, the stock has plummeted since they bought the ad. And word got out they were spending $5.4 million. Keep in mind, as we said last week, this is a company that has a $16 million marketing budget annually. They just spent a third of it on that spot. It landed with a thud. Not good news for Under Armour.
3: Well, my, the worst commercial I saw was Sales Genie. That commercial was well, and they pulled terrible. Us.
2: They pulled them because they were so controversial and they thought it was offensive. It the is. The pandas offensive. were offensive to Chinese people. So, yeah, that's another one that landed with a thud. And, you know, you see more and more when these commercials are created, whether it's GoDaddy or whatever it is. You know, you got to be careful that you're not offending people. Sales genie landed with a thud. Maybe they got some publicity for landing with a thud, but uh, didn't work out very well. Our next headline, Brian McNamee's lawyer said Wednesday they gave federal prosecutors physical evidence backing the personal trainer's allegation that Roger Clemens used performance-enhancing drugs. Now, both McNamee and Clemens met with investigators this week. They were in Washington D.C. Again, this is he said, she said, but now Nathan, we've got some evidence that Magnemi, who don't forget is a former cop, used to collecting evidence has saved since 2000 and 2001. A little weird? And why Clemens would you is, save
3: it that long? Well, why? supposedly
2: according to his lawyers He thought that Clemens might turn against him someday, and he thinks like a cop, and he put this in a FedEx envelope. He's kept it in a drawer. See, the question is going to be, is it tainted? Is it admissible evidence? And is it actually evidence that you can link the blood and the DNA to Roger Clemens? That's what's going to be interesting. But I'll tell you what, Wednesday, that is going to be must-see TV when you see those guys in front of Congress, McNamee, Clemens, Pettit, Knobloch, I will be glued to the TV that day. Our last headline, uh, the NFL's Buffalo Bills held a news conference in Toronto this week to outline plans for the eight pregame or pre- and regular season games the club is going to play at the Rogers Center over the next five years. Here's the bottom line here. Lots of rumors going around that the Buffalo Bills want to move to Toronto. Toronto is the biggest city in North America without an NFL team besides Los Angeles. There's five times as many people in
3: toronto as there is in buffalo a lot of people think that this is a prelude to a move to toronto well yeah and football is huge in canada the canadian football league does very well up there i think this is a great move for buffalo if it goes through
2: well but it's going to be bad news for the cfl because if the buffalo bills and the nfl go to toronto see you later toronto argonauts and the argonauts owner is not happy about this at all and by the way if you want a ticket to one of these games 250 dollars, you can get a season ticket to the argonauts For that amount of money. Coming up next, Maury Brown with the bizofbaseball.com. Lots of baseball to discuss everything from Johan Santana's record setting contract with the New York Mets to what's the latest with the sale of the Chicago Cubs. That's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back.
0: Sports Business Radio, Saturday (laughs) or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. What were the terms that got that big deal done? These guys know. Sports Business Radio.
2: Well, baseball season is quickly approaching. The NFL season is done, so lots of focus on Major League Baseball. I know I'm excited about spring training. So we are joined by Maury Brown. He's the founder and president of businessofsportsnetwork.com. Maury's always uh, gracious to join us and provide us with some great insight into the business of baseball. Uh, Maury, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian. So
2: lots of news this offseason uh, headlining in my mind is the Mets acquisition of Johan Santana you know a lot of teams out there wanted him we heard earlier on in the offseason that the Yankees might be in the mix the Red Sox might be in the mix but lo and behold the Mets who probably needed him as much as anyone step up and they trade for him really don't have to break up the core of their team and they sign him to a record-breaking deal talk to us a little bit about that if you would
1: Well, I mean, it certainly was going to be a team that that had a regional sports network. I think that that was probably going to be a a large part of it. You know, I know the Mariners were involved in this as well, so it was going to be the Red Sox, the Yankees, uh, the Mets, and then the the Mariners were the long shot. But, I mean, really it's an amazing deal in the sense that the Twins kind of painted themselves into a corner on it. Uh, They probably had more leverage probably a month or so ago but missed that window of opportunity. And so the Mets really come out the benefactor of this. And, you know – it looks to me as if the deal is actually less than what was initially reported. So given those factors, I mean, I think the Mets probably come out on top of this deal.
2: Yeah, and like you said, they're a big market team. They're moving into a new ballpark. You know, here's a headliner ace pitcher that they've been looking for to move into that ballpark. It seems like a no-brainer to me. And, uh, you know, you've got to give some kudos to Omar Minaya for pulling this one off.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, in the sense that you said that they needed the help, they they needed the help badly. I mean, the, that skid last year was of epic proportions, and based upon that, they really needed to do something. They are going into that new stadium. They do have a regional sports network, and this bolsters everything. This gives them a, a marquee player to basically wrap everything around.
2: Another big story this offseason, the Ongoing drama with the sale surrounding the Chicago Cubs. Now, Sam Zell, who uh, owns the Cubs and owns Wrigley, has said that he may sell them separately. I think that's a huge mistake and, and quite frankly, a disservice to baseball. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more in one sense, but Sam Zell has no emotional attachment to the Cubs. And the reason he's doing it is really, you know, pretty selfish in some senses. What he's got is he's got about $13 billion in debt from the 18. 18- Point two billion purchase of Tribune Company, and he's about ready to have to make a payment. So if he breaks up and sells Wrigley to the state of Illinois, he's able to get some cash in hand right now, which he can use. You know, And the bad thing about it from an ownership's perspective, the prospective owners that are looking into it, the, the ability to, to basically, the state's going to float uh, bonds to finance the stadium's acquisition and then future renovation, and then they're also going to do possibly a naming rights deal. None of which ownership gets to enjoy. So they're basically going to help pay with rent payments for this renovation, yet they don't own the facility. They can't do a naming rights deal. It's in some sense, is a very bad situation from baseball's perspective.
2: Well, in doing a naming rights deal, I mean, it's Wrigley Field. You can't call it anything else. I mean, that's blasphemy, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to call it, you know, your company name at Wrigley Field. And as a secondary naming rights, I'm hearing in the neighborhood of eight to ten million dollars annually, seems like an absolute steal for the state of Illinois if they wind up with, with Wrigley Field because, I mean, who is ever going to think of it in any other terms than Wrigley? The only way that it works is if the Wrigley company, who's been enjoying the, the naming rights of the stadium since they don't own it since the 80s, would, would decide to go ahead and pitch in and pay for the naming rights.
2: John Canning Jr. seems to be the front runner to purchase the Cubs. Do you think this affects... His bid or anyone else's bid knowing that you can only buy the team but you can't buy Wrigley Field
1: yeah, I mean it's going to impact it in, in you know in certain ways, certainly in the dollar value is going to drop it loses its luster, but look I mean it's huge bragging rights to say that you own the Cubs. they are you know a cornerstone franchise of baseball, so I can't really see it you know impacting and seeing people drop out. The serious bidders will all be there at the end and, and I have said this from day one. I think John canning is wired for this from the get-go. I think he's going to be the next owner.
2: Let's talk about some new stadiums. Uh, the Nationals opened their new park this year. Uh, the Yankees have to wait one more year. Let's start with the Nationals. Uh, tell us about their new stadium. From what I'm reading, uh, it's gotten rave reviews so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really nice in the sense that it's, I mean, it's certainly going to be a huge upgrade from RFK. Um, there's talk about it being more of a hitter's park than a pitcher's park. Um, It's going to be on time and on budget, which is a really amazing thing, given the the accelerated timeline that they had for it. Um, The issues really right now are surrounding parking. They have two parking structures, but they're going to have to do a lot of surface parking. They've allocated about 5,000 spots, but most of those are reserved on the street level for um, season ticket holders. So they're really encouraging people to take the metro um, and take uh, transit that they're going to run from RFK's parking lot. They're going to run shuttles. So that's going to be an issue. The other thing that should be interesting is I mentioned that they're going to have two parking garages, and there are, there's talk about it possibly creating like a wind tunnel, which could make for really interesting baseball out in center field. Jeez. So it's a beautiful facility. You know, it's not really, in some senses, it's not going to look anything like uh, Camden Yards or anything like that, but it's still very nice.
2: And then we've got the Yankees Stadium. This is the last year in old Yankee Stadium. Story came out this week. $1.3 billion is now the tab. For new Yankee Stadium, and I saw one media report. I guess they let some media come tour it this week. That said, it's basically being designed like a five-star hotel with a baseball field in the middle. Uh, tell us about the new Yankee Stadium. Well,
1: I mean, 1.3 billion now. I mean, would it surprise any of us if that price continued to rise? No. You know, I mean, it really is a situation that you know the taxpayers are footing a great deal of the of the bill for this. I mean, it really, in some ways. Um, Rudy Giuliani had a lot to do with the deal on it. He's still being uh, he's under contract there as as an advisor, basically from a security perspective. Um, It really has a lot of, uh, you know, public monies to it. I wouldn't call it a boondoggle at this point, but it's going to be really something else. And it has to be. I mean, look, you're talking about Yankee Stadium. It's, you know, one of the premier ballparks in all the history. Think of all the history that has been in Yankee Stadium and think of the money that the Yankees have to work with. Um, So they're certainly going to want to do something that really is going to be no longer the house that, you know, Ruth built, but the house that King George built in George Steinbrenner. He really wants to leave his mark as he's getting older in his age. He's going to want to leave a mark and something that's going to have lasting um, feel to it. And it looks very much like the 1923s version of it when it was originally done with the limestone, a bunch of limestones coming from uh, Illinois. It's really going to be something else.
2: We're joined by Maury Brown. He's the founder and president of businessofsportsnetwork.com. Maury, uh, Major League Baseball, they're going to be launching a network, I believe, in 2009. I see where they're going to build it in Harlem. You know, we've seen all the troubles the NFL network has had with distribution, but Major League Baseball is taking a different route. It looks like they're going to have much wider distribution from day one. Talk to us a little bit about the network and the new digs.
1: Well, it's going to be the largest cable launch in the history of cable television. It'll be about 47 to 50 million subscribers, and this was done in large part by the ability to tie in um, MLB extra innings to the deal. When the negotiations were going on for that television deal, the deal was that they said any of the carriers that wanted to do that, whether it was Cablevision or whether it was Direct TV, that they were going to have to make new upcoming MLB network that's the name of that they're going with right now in 2009 it would have to be on the basic tier the most readily available um, level that that viewers can get um, so it's gonna be incredible they're gonna build a 21 story glass uh, high-rise in Harlem it will be the first high-rise structure in Harlem in 30 years it's really going to be something and you know in the sense that the amount of money that are going to be coming into it from baseball it will really continue to um, create these robust revenue streams that baseball has really enjoyed for quite a while. It will just continue to to lay that on.
2: We've got just a few minutes left. There's going to be some baseball played abroad before the season begins uh, in China and in Japan. Uh, there's some corporate sponsorships tied to the games in Japan. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, EMC Corp is going to go ahead and they're going to have uh, player patches on it. This was done before with Rico, and I can't remember the other one, but this is the third time in the history of baseball that they've allowed it Um, but they've all been games in Japan. They've never allowed it um, here abroad. Actually, there are rules in baseball that won't allow you to put advertisement on it. I think that it's just a matter of time before we see that start to fade away. But it really, you know, allows baseball, by having the opener there with the Red Sox and the A's in Japan, it allows them to go ahead and, you know, explore some extra revenue streams um, in the Japanese market where it's much more acceptable to do it. You know, it's not the same as doing it in America. And it's just one of those things that allows them to continue to look at other um, forms of revenue. And and baseball's been very, very good at doing that lately.
2: Well, and I think it's brilliant that they're going to China, too. I was in Beijing in September, and I've seen the growth over there firsthand. And the Padres and Dodgers playing some games over there. I guess Joe Torre and Dave Winfield went over there a few weeks ago to make the announcement for that game. I think that's very bright of them, too. I mean, 1.3 billion people in China. That's a great audience for them as well.
1: Well, and they're looking at the Yao and Yi factor that the NBA has enjoyed. I mean, right. uh, there, were, there was talk of 200 million viewers for the last um, Yao, Ming, and Yi game that was played just last week. So they're certainly seeing that there's an incredible amount of money there. I mean, it's just a huge market, and China's going to continue to move in that direction. And if they didn't move on this, they were really late getting into it. I mean, the NBA was certainly at the front of this. The NFL is starting to try and do something. The difficulty with baseball is it was considered a bourgeois sport there for the longest time during you know when Mao's tenure was there so it's like a sport that really hasn't had a lot of visibility so it'll be interesting to see how baseball works this you know they're working very hard with the Chinese national team they're bringing them over for spring training they're really trying to work this as a partnership and certainly as a business I mean the Red Sox and the Yankees have been over there they're looking at this from a corporate sponsorship um, angle I think that's the biggest thing that you're going to see out of this
2: Maury that's all the time we have uh throw out a plug for your website if you would
1: Yeah, it's businessofsportsnetwork.com. You can also visit us at bizofbaseball.com, bizofbasketball.com. We have a number of other sites, so uh, come over and visit.
2: Keep up the good work. Thanks for making time to join us this week.
1: Thank you very much, Brian. It's always a pleasure.
2: Coming up next, Rick Buecher, ESPN's NBA insider. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. and the official steakhouse of sports business radio
0: one on one with those making the big time decisions that impact your sport this is sports sense on sports business radio sports. business radio
2: my guest is Rick Buker he's a friend of the show he's ESPN's NBA insider Rick thanks for joining us
4: My pleasure. A lot going on, so it's a good time for us to get together and chat.
2: Yeah, now that the NFL season is over, the focus is on the NBA and some big trades. The Lakers obviously make a trade to get uh, Pau Gasol, but then the big news in the NBA this week was the trade that brings Shaquille O'Neal to the Phoenix Suns. Uh, The deal sends Sean Marion and Marcus Banks to Miami. Rick, you know, it sounds like the deal was initiated at the owner level when Heat owner Mickey Arison picked up the phone and called Suns owner Robert Sarver to gauge his interest. I was actually with Sarver Monday night in a suite. He ducked out. We didn't see him for most of the rest of the evening. As it turns out, I guess he was going to take some phone calls and uh, talk about this deal.
4: No, that's exactly right. Uh, The the Heat reached out to The Suns on the previous Thursday. It was the day that they played and lost to the Spurs at home. And at the time, the Suns uh, expressed absolutely no interest. Then the Paul Gasol trade went down on Friday, and by Monday, uh, the Suns decided, you know what, we need to do something. And this is this trade actually is a uh, a perfect subject uh, for your show because. More than anything else, people were going to talk about it, it was a reaction to Pau Gasol and that uh, it's uh, you know trying to win a ring and all that. The driving force in making this happen on both sides were the business aspects to it. Uh, Miami wanting to get out from under Shaquille O'Neal's contract, uh, knowing that if they were going to rebuild and if they were going to have any chance of a profit, that they would have to take a different tack. And uh, on the flip side, the Suns. Uh, Accepting it because when they looked at having Marcus Banks on their uh, on their books for at least three more years, and they looked at having to re-up Sean Marion at uh, you know at, uh, presumably more than the 16 million he was making. Right. That uh, when you when you factored those in, uh, the merchandise that Shaquille O'Neal sells, the tickets that they expect him to sell. Uh, that made it uh, not just a decision to improve the chemistry of the team and maybe get a big man that they haven't had, but to look at it and say, hey, you know what? This isn't biting the bullet. We could actually make money off of this deal.
2: Yeah, and I think that's something not enough people are talking about. I was with uh, Rick Welts, who heads up the business operations for the Suns on Monday, and one of the things he was talking about is this week, many of the NBA teams, including the Suns, are sending out season ticket renewal letters. Well, it's no secret the economy isn't Doing the greatest these days, and people's disposable income isn't what it was. If you're going to target 90% renewal rates... You've got to do some outside-the-box things, and not that the Suns don't already do well with ticket sales. They've sold out 100 games in a row. They'll probably have 120 games sold. But they've got new courtside seats, which add about $10 million worth of revenue yep. for them. I mean, look, we've seen what Shaq did in Los Angeles. We saw what he did in Miami to the economics. And just from a franchise value, you've got to think that the day that he gets traded to the Suns, the franchise value probably goes up 25 to $40 million. <laughs>
4: You would think that, but the question is, if this is the Shaquille O'Neal that we, uh, if he can't get on the court, then it's a lot like Michael Jordan being in the front office. Right. Uh, I don't know what impact he has. And uh, if, uh, you know, the Phoenix Suns and and the the Phoenix community in general is a front-running type of community uh, as far as sports are concerned. And they Uh, really
2: like Sean Marion
0: down there.
4: They really like Sean Marion, uh, and uh, they they really like the up and down style. Uh, So you know, you you look at uh, the Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks were having a tremendous amount of success, uh, but because they were kind of late to the game, uh, and and there wasn't really a a build up in terms of what they could do, and nobody, you know, they were they were everybody thought they were lucky to get into the postseason. Uh, They didn't really see them as championship contenders. Well. The Suns are a lot like that. I, I still would put the Lakers, uh, the Utah Jazz, and the San Antonio Spurs uh, ahead of the Phoenix Suns right now as far as uh, title contenders in the West are concerned. And so that's going to be the real question. Is he going to give them an immediate bump? Absolutely. And maybe this is the gamble that they're, that they're, uh, that they're running is that, hey, look, we're sending out season ticket renewals now. Uh, we just got Shaq. That's got to give us a huge bump. So we're covered for next season. And if he if he isn't any good, and if he he really doesn't have anything left, well, you know what? Then it's really only costing us one season on his contract before he goes away. So uh, the the one plus here is that they didn't have to promise him any sort of an extension uh, to make this happen, which is exactly what Miami had to do to get uh, get get him out of LA. Now, all that said, for me. Uh, Pat Riley cemented his legacy with this move because he found a way to get Shaq, and he found a way to squeeze another ring out of him and a team that nobody expected to win a championship. Right, and then he gets out of paying, you know, the, the last 40 million on the mortgage to own the house. So, uh, to me, uh, I don't know. I, it may work out for the Suns, but I know that this worked out. Uh, tremendously for Pat Riley and the Miami
2: Heat. Yeah, and speaking of the Heat, I mean, I thought it was interesting that Riley said he can see Dwayne Wade and Sean Marion kind of becoming maybe the next Jordan and Pippen. I mean, that's quite a twosome right there. And you kind of get a mulligan here. I mean, this is going to be a really good draft this year, and they're going to get a high lottery pick. You add a Michael Beasley or someone like that to that team, and all of a sudden in the East, you're right back in the game.
4: Not only that, but Pat gets to change the style, and this is something that he went to Uh, more of uh, when they won their championship. It's why they brought in Jason Williams and Antoine Walker, because he wanted to play more of an up-and-down style. And when Shaq wasn't on the floor, that's the way they played, and and Dwayne Wade and that team as a whole were actually better when they played that style. So do not be surprised if Pat Riley jumps up and, uh, after sending Shaq to the Phoenix Suns, steals their blueprint and starts playing that kind of game down in Miami.
2: Yeah, it really is amazing. I want to talk to you about several other things. We're joined by Rick Bucher. He's ESPN's NBA insider. Rick, in just a few weeks, the NBA All-Star Game is headed to New Orleans. Since the last time we had you on the show, the Hornets have renegotiated their deal with the state of Louisiana. There's now an escape clause in their rental agreement that allows them to relocate if they don't meet certain attendance marks. These are aggressive attendance marks. It, It looks unlikely that they're going to meet those marks Let's talk about uh, New Orleans for a minute. You and I have agreed for the last few years on this show that New Orleans wasn't a good market before Hurricane Katrina. They're a worse market now. I think it's only a matter of time until they relocate, especially given this new clause. I'm looking at Seattle, Kansas City, Anaheim as possible relocation sites or shin cells and someone from one of those areas buys the team. I know this is way down the road, but with New Orleans hosting the All-Star Game, this is going to be a topic of conversation.
4: No doubt about it, and it'll be interesting to see what sort of turnout they get uh, in New Orleans. Um, you know, the, the holding the uh, the All-Star game in Las Vegas was a real referendum for the league as to whether they would go there, and the and the the city did such a terrible job that I, I would not expect that you're going. I mean, and Vegas completely fell off the map. It's funny that you didn't mention them, but they they have completely fallen off the map as far as uh, a prospective NBA city is concerned. Kansas City, I know uh, from what I've been told, anyway, uh, believes that it has a very, very good chance of getting the uh, New Orleans Hornets. But in any case, what happens down there? You know how how security is, how the the uh, the community uh, embraces the NBA, what the turnout is, how much money is made, and this is all going to be a, a, a real look into: is there a market there? Uh, and if there isn't, uh, then uh, then maybe it's time to go. but if there is, then maybe it's just George Shinn is not doing a very good job uh, of selling this team, which would not be the first time. Uh, well, that's, that's
2: what Mark Cuban said uh, exactly, this week.
4: Exactly. So uh, I believe that the, 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 the all-star game is, uh, is going to be, uh, is going to provide a lot of information on a lot of levels. And uh, the the response uh, and, and how events go could have a lot to do with how the league looks at uh, the, the, the Hornets petitioning to move out of there.
2: Another franchise that could be on the move, the Seattle Sonics. This is also not groundbreaking news since the last time we spoke, but something that has been a new development is they've got this June court date that's going to determine whether or not the Sonics – have to play out their lease, which doesn't expire until the 2009-2010 season is done at Key Arena. So they want to move to Oklahoma City ASAP. Well, the Board of Governors meeting is coming up April 17th and 18th in New York. The owners are going to be asked to vote on approving this relocation. Well, the little twist here is the city of Seattle has said it will consider adding the NBA to the lawsuit should the league approve relocation of the Sonics. So you could have some owners here. If they vote yes, yes. they could wind up in a lawsuit. Do you think that's going to impact the way they vote?
4: Uh, I, I, I don't know, but my guess is that it will not, because they have, uh, they have been a group that has had tremendous solidarity, and David Stern has been very good at maintaining that solidarity and they essentially, anytime these decisions come down, even uh, so far, even at the uh, at the expense of the group as a whole, they have uh, almost uniformly voted as if they were in that particular owner's shoes. Uh, and nobody looked at the New Orleans, you know, Charlotte going to New Orleans and said, "Man, that's a good deal. Right. Man, that makes a lot of business sense." And they knew it was a bad deal, and they knew that in some ways, shape, or form, it was going to impact the league as a whole and, and they as owners individually. But they did not want to sacrifice their own ability uh, to make such a move for themselves. And so they've always voted as if, well, okay, I may, want, I may one day want to do what I want to do, and it may not be the best for everyone, but I want to have the ability to do that they, they have collectively voted and, and uh, maintained that freedom uh, for each individual. So I would expect, I don't know, but I would expect that they'll maintain the same line.
2: Well, and let's not forget, anytime there's a relocation, the owners get a relocation fee. So there is a certain amount of uh, financial upside Absolutely. for these owners to vote that way. Uh, a few minutes left. You know, we talked extensively several months back about this Tim Donaghy scandal. David Stern said he was a rogue referee. It was an isolated incident. You know what, we haven't heard anything about this this season. Is this a dead issue, or is there something just below the surface that might come up sometime in the future as far as you know?
4: I wouldn't say it's a dead issue. I would just say it's not the issue that uh, it appeared to be when uh, everybody jumped up and down. It was the FBI investigating, and there were games being manipulated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. From all that I can gather, uh, it, it uh, th- the case, one, does not uh, appear to be that extraordinary. And and unless there's something out there that we're not aware of, uh, this comes back to wondering why the FBI made such a big deal about this to begin with. Because uh, obviously you don't want referees involved in gambling. You don't want players involved in gambling. But if this was a matter of a guy who was essentially telling some low-level bookies which refereeing crews were, were working which games, uh, I, I'm sorry, but in the large scope of things and the things that I want the FBI looking at, yeah. that's rather banal. So, um, uh, you know, and, and I just I don't get the sense, and I said it at the time in a number of places, I said, you know, I, I really want to see what they have on him because I've talked to referees who've worked games with him. I know what the scrutiny is. I, I just find it hard to imagine that he could be doing something really overt that the other referees would not be aware of and two you just you don't have any you don't have any degree of certainty that the call is going to be your call to make or that the guy is going to make the free throws i mean it's right. just it's too difficult and so uh, if if this doesn't amount to something significant then in a weird way this could really flip back in the league's favor and they could be looked at somewhat as a victim here, and their system of of scrutiny could be upheld as saying, hey, look, we we couldn't imagine how he could be doing something because we look at our referees so closely, and sure enough, the FBI took a run at us, and and even they couldn't find something. So um, do do you not want it to happen? Absolutely. But I just, uh, the the longer this takes for it to play out, uh, the more I suspect that it's because it's not all that we thought it was last summer.
2: Rick, last question before the season started. Right here on this very show, I asked you who you liked for the NBA Finals, and you said the Houston Rockets and the Detroit Pistons. I said the Phoenix Suns and the Boston Celtics. I don't want a mulligan. I'm standing by my pick. Do you want a mulligan? Uh,
4: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Who are you taking now? uh, You know what? It's such a crapshoot in the Eastern Conference, but I I uh, I would take the Cleveland Cavaliers. And I am going to assume that Andrew Bynum is going to come back and he's going to be healthy, and I will take the Los Angeles Lakers. Right now it it boils down between the Lakers and the Utah Jazz for me. I really like the Jazz, but um, if if Kobe Bryant has a full compliment, uh, I can't bet against him, and uh, nor can I bet against LeBron James. I I would love to stay with Detroit, but um, I've seen them. I know their situation. First bump in the road they hit, uh, they're going to fracture much like they did in the playoffs last year. So I'm going to go with the short thing and say that Cleveland's going to get back there.
2: All right, we're going to save this tape. Guests appearing during <laughs> once
4: our, again, yes, we are
2: guests appearing during our sports on segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses, Morton's the Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to mortons.com. Rick, I know you're busy this week. It's always wonderful to catch up with you. Thanks for making the time. Pleasure, Brian. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training monitoring and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The
0: website is
2: sportsbusinessradio.com. We are back with our final segment on this edition of Sports Business Radio. One final note on Super Bowl 42 Nevada Sportsbooks lost a record $2.6 million on Super Bowl bets when the Giants upset the New England Patriots last Sunday. The handle on the game was just more than $92 million. The record for handle on a game for a Super Bowl 2006 when $94.5 million was bet. The last time Nevada casinos lost money on the Super Bowl, back in 1995, when the San Francisco 49ers blew out the San Diego Chargers, 49-26, to 26, and Nevada books lost a measly $400,000. Nathan, this just goes to show you, you know, we always talk about how smart the owners are and the GMs, and the smartest people in sports are the people
3: setting these lines and the people in Las Vegas because they never lose. Yeah, $2.6 million is absolutely nothing. However, that's positive. For me, I'm going down to Vegas the first weekend of March Madness, and it looks like they're on a losing streak, so hopefully that'll continue when I go down there.
2: Yeah, good luck with uh, with that one. Uh, who do, who's your early favorite for uh, winning it uh, uh, all I'm in gonna March Madness? I'm going to jump on the
3: bandwagon right now. I, I think Memphis is so tough right now, but North Carolina, I think, uh, I think they could do some damage.
2: Okay, I thought you were going to say uh, University of Portland Pilots. I'm glad you didn't say oh. that. The Major League Baseball Texas Rangers have named baseball Hall of Famer Nolan Ryan as their president team owner Tom Hicks announced that this week uh Ryan has served uh, under a personal services contract with the club until two thousand four. He currently owns the Double A Texas League Corpus Christi Hooks, and the AAA PCL Round Rock Express. I love that name. Both affiliated with the Astros, so you would think that he'd have to give up uh, his ownership of those teams if he's going to be running the Rangers. But I think this is a good decision. You know, a lot of times we see athletes put into positions just because of who they are. And because he's got ownership experience, he's got uh, experience running a team, I think Nolan Ryan is going to make a good president of the Texas Rangers. Lots of thank yous on this week's show, Maury Brown from bizofbaseball.com, Rick Buecher, he's ESPN's NBA insider, our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, ProTrade.com, and Evergreen Media Training. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week, just go to sports.com businessradio.com or check us out on the iTunes page. I'm Brian Berger. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you next weekend.